this is my least favorite day of the year. Um, but I thought it was fitting to preach on this psalm with this being the day to ce celebrate our three graduates. Um, all three of them were very, very devoted to the youth ministry, and I hate to see them go, but I am so thankful for Brother Dave and that um, last year we were able to get a college and career ministry uh, up and running. It was during the graduation service last year that I spoke on the need for a college and career ministry, and praise the Lord, here it is. Um, you know, because once our youth graduate high school, they go off to college. Most college professors aren't Bible-believing Christians. Right? Many of them question if there is a God at all. And they want to dismiss the notion that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. You know, they, like the Pharisees, reject the cornerstone, claiming to be wise, they became fools. So I'm thankful for the CNC uh, because the church is always one generation away from extinction. So yeah, I need you all to understand that the church is always one generation away from extinction. Because if we do not tell our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews about Jesus, this church would eventually die off. And why does this church exist? If you don't know, it's on the front of your bulletin. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who will serve the world. We are here to make disciples for the glory of God. It's why we have a whole other building on this property. We used to call it Sunday school, but that's no longer the cool thing to do, so we call it life groups. It's the same thing. All right, we have children in the fellowship hall learning things that happen in the Bible and about Jesus right now. Why? So that the next generation knows who Jesus is, so they can one day come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and one day that generation can be the next set of leaders in the church, and they can tell the next generation of what God did for those that put their faith in him. Amen. That is what the youth ministry is for, in case anyone was wondering. It's not a safe place for teenagers to hang out, because frankly, it's not a safe place. In case there's any confusion on that, the youth ministry is just not a hangout spot. I'm not there just hanging out with the youth in fact, it's one of the most offensive places you go in Oceanway. Because in those four walls, week in and week out, children, our teenagers are going to hear that there is only one way to get to heaven. Understand that the gospel is the most offensive thing on the planet if you do not call Jesus Lord and Savior. And I'm, I'm very thankful because the youth at our church are being used now. You know, they're on the tech team, they're going on mission trips, they show up for church cleanup days, they help collect the tithes and offerings. I was reminded that they do the Bible stories for VBS. They do a lot, and they serve, and it's all for the glory of God. So I'm, I'm proud to be a part of a church that the next generation is serving already. But I need you to think about this. Historically speaking, the church has done a really, really good job of passing the faith from generation to generation. It was almost assumed for decades for those of us who are born again and we go on to have children that we would eventually pass the gospel on to our children. And that has been true until recent history. Dr. Tom Rayner had done some research that has been compiled in a book called The Bridger Generation. And what he does is he compares where we used to be with that assumption to where we are now. And here's the measurement of how the gospel is doing through us to the next generation. I'm going to give you the percentage of people who profess to be born-again Christians who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Um, and 
the first group I want to mention is the 65-year-olds are older. 65% of those who are 65 years or older claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, we would say that's probably pretty good, right, at least for the 65% who have put their faith in Christ for salvation. It's not so good for the ones that haven't, but 65%, that's pretty good. But one generation later, 46 to 64, 35%. 35% in one generation spans, we go from 65 to 35 of people professing that Jesus is Savior and Lord. We would have to say that's not really good. But what about that next generation? 34 to 45. 15%. 15%. We would have to say that's not really good at all. But if we move one generation younger, if we go 16 to 33 years old, he points us to the fact that we only have 4%. 4% of 16 to 33-year-olds who are embracing and engaged with the gospel. Four. Do we care about this? Or is your thought process, I'm not going to be here, so it's not really my problem. And if that's your attitude, may, may I encourage you to check your heart. Because when Moses disobeyed God, God told him that he would not enter the Holy Land. And what did Moses do after that? He led the people as far as he could possibly go before the next generation, Joshua, took over. Are we going to be like Moses and let God use us for as long as we possibly can? Or are we going to treat the church like a social club? Do we care that 4% of 16 to 33-year-olds know Jesus as Lord and Savior? So that's 96% of 16 to 33 year olds that don't know Jesus and let's put a cherry on top of this Lifeway has done a dropout study and in that study one of the things they discovered of those students that we do have engaged with the gospel when they graduate high school 70 percent 70 percent of those disappear from church influence sometime over the next four years so out of the 10 students involved in the church in high school seven of them will be gone after they graduate within four years. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we can turn to Scripture is what we can do. And with all this in mind, I want us to read Psalm 78, and we're going to piece together what the church needs to do. So if you're able and willing, I'd ask you to stand as we read Psalm 78. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then 12 through 16. And starting in verse 1, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. I'll drop down to verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zion. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you because you first loved us, Lord, just... Speak your truths, Lord. Speak your words. Not I, but you. 
just thank you for this opportunity, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we must do is we must tell the next generation about God according to the scriptures. First thing is we have to tell our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. If your brothers and sisters don't love Jesus, you tell your niece and nephew, you tell your little cousins, you tell your neighbors, that weird kid down the street that kind of smells funky, you tell him too. You tell them all about Jesus. And you don't just tell them once and be done with it. You have to tell them each and every day. Because what if in God's kingdom, success is not measured by what you do, but in who you raise? Let me say that one again. What if in God's kingdom, success is not measured by what you do, but in who you raise? And if you don't have kids, this still applies to you because it takes everybody. You've heard the saying that it takes a village. No, it doesn't. If you use the village, you're going to end up with a village idiot. It takes a church to raise a child. All right, that should have got a few more amens, but that's cool. Y'all just keep sitting there. Are we talking to our children about the Lord? You have to make it normative to talk about Jesus in your home. Do we understand this? We have to make it normative to talk about Jesus in our home. Because if we don't, that next generation is going to be even lower than 4%. Kids love acting rebellious, don't they? They think they're so non-conforming. They love thinking they're unique. What is more counterculture than being a Christian in today's society? A Christian teenager walking in the halls of a high school is like a redneck at the opera. They're going to stick out. All right? 80% of all followers of Jesus come to know Jesus before they graduate high school. We have to reach the next generation. How do we do that? Well, here is what the answer isn't. New methods are not the answer. There is no magic bullet for reaching the next generation. There have been a ton of fads and trends that have come in and moved out of the church, and they produce short-term results. Then the church moves on to the next fad, the next trend. In our modern context, think about this. We have better curriculum than we've ever had before. We have more and higher quality camps. We have better conferences, events, and trainings than ever before. But the statistics tell us that all those things are not producing the outcomes we would like. We have to make this. We have to make the word foundational. That has to be the foundation of everything this church does because if we don't, it's all sinking sand and the statistics are showing that. The Israelites knew this. They memorized scripture. They woke up. They went to bed with scripture on their lips. They would repeat the Shema every single day. Um, the Shema is in Deuteronomy 6. Um, and it is, hear, O God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was actually one of our memory verses one week. But then it goes on to say, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And understand where it says you, this is like a multiple you. We're in the South, so it's like y'all, right? But it's not just y'all, it's because that can mean just some of y'all, but it's all y'all, all right? All y'all shall teach them. And not 
and everybody, married, single, everyone is responsible for reaching the next generation and telling them who God is. It does take a church. Now let's put this in a modern context. When you're on the couch, talk about Jesus. When you're in the car heading somewhere, talk about Jesus. There are two great times to talk about Jesus, daytime and nighttime. There are two great places to talk about Jesus, inside your house and outside your house. All right. Are we making the Lord one in our home? Or is he sharing the mantle with something else? Is God one in your life? Or is he up there with sports? Are your kids little league team? Are your spouse or your job or your friends or whatever it may be? If you do not put God first in your home, why on earth would your kids? And the stats on the scoreboard right now are showing we haven't put God first or the next generation wouldn't be so far behind. So hear that. Normalize talking about God and what he is doing in your homes all the time. All the time. Sitting on your couch. Jesus. Outside in your backyard. Jesus. Riding in your car. Jesus. When you go to bed, when you wake up. Jesus. We teach the next generation who God is. We teach them the glorious deed of the Lord in his mighty ways. We tell our children that everything begins and ends with God. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the sustainer of all, the ruler of all, and He is ultimate. We don't teach children convenient rules to obey and religious rituals to follow and life skills to know. We're going to teach them God. I should have got some more amens, by the way. But that's cool. Y'all just stay awake. We teach the next generation who God is. In Exodus 32... The second book of the Torah, the second of the five books of Moses, in the book of Exodus in chapter 32, Moses has been at the top of Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. He has to come down because Aaron and the people created a golden calf. They created a God to worship. Moses goes down and he says to the people who is on the Lord's, or he says to the people who is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all of the sons of Levi went to him, and Moses orders them to kill the people in the camp. And they went through the camp killing their brothers, their companions, their neighbors, and anyone who sinned against God, the Bible says, was killed. So it just wasn't a random uh, event. Because verse 28 says, And the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So 3,000 people died that day. Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and 3,000 people died. Now, in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, I want you to see why we point to the gospel and its life-changing power instead of rules to obey, religious rituals to follow, and life skills to deny. This is the chapter of Pentecost where the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. People are hearing each other in their native tongue, even though every nation under heaven was there according to the Bible. And they were amazed and astonished at this. And then Peter starts preaching. Peter's sermon in this chapter is the first in a series of sermons throughout the book of Acts. As a sermon to a mainly Jewish audience, it consists mainly of spiritual truths. He's interpreting the miracles of tongues as a fulfillment to Joel 2. And he's presenting Christ as the Messiah in fulfillment. And the scripture ends with a call to repentance and baptism. And in verse 41 of chapter 2, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
Don't miss this. The law was introduced and 3,000 people died. But when people heard the gospel, 3,000 people found life. That is why we preach the gospel. We don't teach children convenient rules to obey, rituals to follow, and life skills to know. We teach them God. Because Jesus is the only way to everlasting life. All right, that's a little bit better. All right, second thing. We also teach the next generation what God has done. We tell the events. We tell them the wonders he has done, which is what the rest of this psalm is recounting, of all that God has done in the history of his people. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. The psalmist is telling them how God has faithfully and powerfully provided for his people from generation to generation. He's teaching them who God is, and we need to teach them what God has done. And that is the beauty of this psalm. We didn't read the entire psalm, but this is the longest historical psalm in the Bible. And when you read through it all, you see event after event, account after account of God's work among God's people. So get the picture of what we're passing on to the next generation. We're telling our children that we're a part of a story that began a long time ago. So we are not the first ones on the planet. Our children are not the first ones on the scene. We get to tell our children that the world does not revolve around them. Praise the Lord. The world revolves around God. History revolves around God. He is weaving a grand story made up of all individual stories that we are a part of. And I love this. We have taught Judah to pray before every meal he receives. We know we are not the first parents to do that. Last night, we get Judah to pray. He's got some food in his hand. His eyes are fixated on something outside the, in the, through the window. And he sprints through his prayer. God is great. God is good. Let's thank you for a food power. We are fed. Thank you for the daily bread. Amen. He sounded exactly how they talk at the end of the, uh, every prescription medication commercial. All right? That's listing all the side effects. That's, that's what he sounded like. And I just look at him. I'm like, you're not the first kid to do that. Because we're doing what families did, have done throughout history. Generation after generation. We sit there in our homes and we tell our children about the parting of the Red Sea. We tell them about all that God has done. And we realize what we are doing. We are telling the same stories to our kids that they were telling to their kids then centuries ago. So where in the world did it go wrong? Because 4% clearly shows that something has gone wrong. And I think it's because we started compromising on the importance of the Lord being one. God is first. Unless there's a little league game. God is first. Unless you have too much homework. God is first. Unless it's beach weather. And I'm not anti-beach weather. I'm not anti-sport. When Judah is older, man, I hope I, he is playing sports. I hope I get to spend time coaching and cheering on my son. But that's not going to become our life. Some parents think their child is the next great athlete, don't they? I've coached a lot of sports, and there's always a parent or two that thinks their child is the greatest athlete since Tim Tebow. <laughs> Kelly's dealt with some that think they're the next Michael Phelps. Problem with that is they now have let that sport consume their lives, and that child's relationship with God's been pushed to the side. If you are one of these parents, I got news for you, Scooter. Your kid ain't that good. 
You need to relax. And you can be sitting there going, not my kid. My kid hits dingers. And if they are and they go on to sign with a big college like Florida, I don't care. They get drafted first overall. They go on to win championships, win MVPs, make millions, end up in the Hall of Fame. Their jersey number's retired. They get a statue outside of the stadium. And they don't have a relationship with God. Is it worth it? They could grow up to be rich and famous, and inside they're going to be spiritually dead. And when they die with those trophies and awards and accolades, all the money in the bank, it's going to stay here. And it's going to become moth food while your child will spend an eternity in hell. I hope that stings. Does that sound like it's worth it? And don't think I left out you smart parents either. Parents of those smart kids are like, yeah, you get him. But y'all act like where y'all go to school is the most important thing in the world. And Jesus would say it this way, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Are we compromising? Are we causing our kids to stumble right out of the gate? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18. And you can flip over there if you want to, but Matthew 18, verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, not just change the importance on the perspective of children, but become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now understand, in the first century, their view on children was real different than our view on society today. We almost worship children. All right? Helicopter parents and all the money we spend on them. In the first century, children were ignored, they were overlooked, and they were taught to get out of the way of the adult. Jesus is saying this. Not only should we teach kids, but they have a lot to teach us. We need them in our lives to, remi to be reminded as an example of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And I think there's a bunch of things we need to change and become like children in. I think we need to change and become dependent like a little child. We live in a world that tells us as we mature and grow older, we start out as dependent and we grow and become more and more independent. Now Jesus says in, in God's kingdom, that's flipped upside down. To mature, that means you come to Jesus and you start out fully independent saying, I got this. But as you grow and you get to the place where you realize, I ain't got this. And as we mature, we grow less and less independent on ourselves and we become more and more dependent on our Heavenly Father. So we are to change and become like a child like that. But not only in our dependence, but also in our humility. In the first century, no child thought much of themselves. And we are taught to make much of ourselves and no one else will, right? And Jesus is saying we all need to humble ourselves like a little child. And I think he's also saying we need to become bold like a little child as well. And here's what I mean. And I'm going to use my wife Blair when she was little as an example. And I'm also going to use Judah because I think they're funny stories. Kids have no problems whatsoever asking questions or telling bold truths. Kids notice when something are out of line. And when they do, they're going to, know, uh, they're going to tell you about it. They're going to say something. Like when my wife was little, she was at Miss Rain's because her mom worked at Rain's High School as a teacher at the time, and she was the sponsor of the Miss Rain's contest. And Blair's mom is talking to this lady who is one of the judges. 
Now, this lady was a little older, and she had a few whiskers coming out of her face, like some of my youth boys. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Not a full-on beard, but like a hair here and there. And little Blair does not know discretion. So little Blair looks up at this lady and goes, you got something on your chin right there. The lady initially ignores her, but after about nine or ten times of Blair saying that, she finally looks at her and goes, yes, I know, dear. That's bold. I don't think any of us would do that as adults. And here's another example, and this time I'm going to use Judah. Judah is in the drive-thru line at Burger King, and Blair's taking him through the drive-thru line, not that my son is driving. Um, but before I go on, you must understand that Judah, anytime Judah eats, we always go, ooh, you fat boy, and he'll pat his tummy and stick his tummy out, or he'll come up while he's eating, and he goes, I fat boy, and sticks his tummy out and pat it, and we laugh, and he enjoys it. Now that backfired. That, this is going to backfire big time. So she's in line at Burger King. They get up to the window, and this lady was healthy. All right, and Judah just yells at the top of his lungs, ooh, she fat boy too. <laughs> Imagine my wife about died there. It's a bold statement. My son's a, a bold little boy. If I asked him to come up on stage and sing, I don't think he would hesitate. He'll sing his heart out, and he wouldn't care what any one of y'all thought. But if I were to ask one of y'all to come up here and sing, you'd look at me like I was crazy. You? No? No way. Right? Isn't it something that as we get older and more mature, we become more and more concerned about the applause of man and less concerned about the applause from our Heavenly Father? And I'm telling you, what is wrong with us? Kids don't worry about that stuff. They don't care about the applause of man. We need to get back to that point. May we get back to that point where we only care what our Heavenly Father thinks and forget about what everyone else thinks. And maybe, just maybe, I think Jesus is saying here, we should change and be free of our past. You know what a little kid doesn't have much of? A past, right? Right? When that child came up to Jesus, he didn't come up with him with a bunch of baggage from his past. Because essentially, he can't remember most of his past. Right? Judah was flexing his guns at me one night, and he said, and I said, oh boy, you strong. He goes, I know, but when I was little, I wasn't. Boy, you're three. <laughs> most adults are paralyzed with fear from something that had happened to them in their past. And maybe Jesus is saying here is that your past doesn't define you. Amen. Only I get to define you. Right. Jesus defines our future. That we are to change and become like little children. And then the next verse says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This has a whole bunch to do with what we're talking about today. The next generation. The reason we are called as one church to reach the next generation is because I don't know about you, but I want the presence of Jesus to be in this church. And what Jesus is saying is as we receive one more little child, we receive the very presence of Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives us this incredible, incredible responsibility, and now he's going to give us a very, very stern warning. And he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown and, uh, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. For all those that thought Jesus was meek and mild, you clearly have never heard him preach. Because he said, hey man, you screw this up, 
If you screw this up, I'm going to tie a millstone. And a millstone is this big old rock. It's big as you are. He says, I'm going to tie that big old millstone around your neck and throw you off the pier. See you next week. Actually, I won't because you're going to be dead. And it's better for you for that to be your future than for you to cause one of those little ones of mine to stumble. It's a very high calling with a very stern warning. And holding scripture to my own life this week, what areas are we potentially causing one more generation to stumble? Are we teaching them the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Or maybe we are teaching the, upcom uh, the upcoming generation that Jesus is negotiable. Jesus is negotiable. I mean, he's important, unless it's football season. Then he's just less important. He's important as long as he doesn't make me uncomfortable. He's important as long as you play the worship songs I want to hear. He's important as long as we do church the way I want it done. Because once our wants aren't being met, then God is no longer first. And we have to stop compromising on who God is. And that can look like a thousand different things. Spend more time with God and spend less time at the ballparks. Spend more time with God in worship and making a joyful noise than worrying about what the song actually is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And with not compromising, it brings us to our third thing we must do, and we must exalt the Savior to the next generation. We tell the next generation about God's mercy toward his people. We tell the next generation how God's grace triumphs over man's sin. The story of Israel is the story of how God responds to people's failures with his forgiveness. God forgives. He is compassionate. It is the only reason this story keeps going, right? If he was not compassionate, if he was not merciful, it would have been game over as soon as the apple was ate in the garden. But the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Israel's story in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, is the story about God's response to his people's failures with forgiveness. How God responds to his people's faithlessness with his faithfulness. And this is good. And it gets even better when you realize that Psalm 78, it ain't the end of the story. When you realize that this recounting of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and faithfulness ultimately points not backwards, but it points forward to Christ, the promised Son of God, God in the flesh, who would come to pay the price for all our failures, who would come to endure the penalty of all our faithful, faithlessness. And thank God he did just that. He who knew no sin became sin so we could be clothed with the righteousness of God. And we exalt the Savior because he is the only thing worth exalting. Amen. So we tell God who God is, or we tell them who God is, what God has done, and we exalt the Savior all to the next generation. And so follow this. This is not just teaching and telling and exalting simply for information's sake. This is teaching and telling and exalting for transformation's sake. So what do we hope the outcome of trying to reach the next generation will be? We do these things. We teach. We tell. We exalt. What are we hoping for? Well, I think we're hoping for at least three things. The first thing is that they will know God in their minds. We pray. We guide. We work as a church. We work in our homes so that the next generation, that they will know God in their minds. We want them to know God. We want our children to know God deeply. 
Nothing does my heart better than hearing Judah sing songs about Jesus. And understand that sometimes he changes the lyrics up a little bit to where something's tooting, but it's a start. We want them to know God. We want teenagers to have an intimate knowledge of who God is. I am heartbroken that we had to cancel camp this year because that's why, why we do camp. That's why we have D-Now weekends and we have game nights and breakfast clubs and every event. Some of them may not even realize it, but every youth outing we have, they are being spiritually fed the word of God because my heart desires is for each and every one of my youth to know God deeply. And these three graduates we have in here, they have achievements, they have scholarships, they have accolades, which is awesome. But it is not the most important goal. It is not the ultimate goal and not the one that matters most. What matters most is what Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let me... But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows men that I am the Lord. That is what we want more than anything. That is what we should want more than anything. More than any achievements, bright futures, and other scholarships, we want them to know God. We teach who God is according to the Bible. We tell the events and we exalt the Savior. And we hope it leads them to knowing God in their minds. But not only in their minds, but also in their hearts. Because the second thing is we do this so they will trust God in their hearts. We didn't read it uh, initially, but verse 7 of Psalm 78 says, So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The goal is that the knowledge of God in their heads will lead to hope in God in their hearts. So we're not just after head knowledge. We're after heart trust. We don't just tell stories for the sake of telling stories. We tell stories so that children will believe, that they'll believe that God is trustworthy, that they'll put their trust in him, that they'll trust in him to satisfy them, that they'll turn away from sin aside from the pleasures of the world because the, they found greater treasure in God. We hope their hearts will belong to God. Then the third thing we hope happens is that they will obey God in their lives. That they will keep his commandments. And at the end of verse 7 it says that they should not be like their fathers. Stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful. We don't want them to turn away. We want them to keep his commandments faithfully. Isn't that what we long for? As parents. And not even just parents, but every member of the church. Don't we long for children and students from our homes and from this body to know Jesus? Don't we long for children and students to finish high school in our midst to walk into this world knowing God? Knowing God in a way that some atheistic professor on a college campus can't just shoot down their faith because all they know is a few good facts about God. No, they know God. Don't we want them to walk into the world trusting God to lead them, to guide them, to satisfy the deepest desires of their heart? They don't need to squander their time running after things of this world because they have God. We want them to know, trust, and obey because the hymn says there is no other way. And they know, trust, and obey because we poured into them who God is, 
what he has done, and we exalt him as Savior, so one day they will believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what I'm about to say wasn't originally in the sermon. In God's economy, there is no retirement. If your last child graduates high school, and some of y'all got like five, six, seven, eight kids. If your last child graduates high school, it is still your responsibility to reach the next generation. If you're retired from your job, good for you. That gives you more time to do kingdom work. That doesn't mean you get to retire from kingdom work too. Nowhere in the Bible does it show any person retiring. I mean, Caleb in the book of Joshua is 85 years old. Caleb and Joshua are the two oldest Israelites at the time because God sent the Israelites into the desert for 40 years because they would not take the promised land as they were commanded. God let an entire generation die off before he let the Israelites take the promised land. May we not be the generation that has to die off for the kingdom work to continue. But understand, everyone over 20 years old was going to die in the desert except for Caleb and Joshua. And that's because they were the only ones that believed they could take the land. Now here he is, 85 years old, and he is telling Joshua to give him that hill, give him that mountain where the Anakim are. And the Anakim were giants. An 85-year-old guy is telling him to give him that mountain, and it's because, and I quote, it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. 85 years old, and he isn't even sure if God will be with him, but he wants to try. He wants to serve the Lord. We all need to be like that. We don't stop trying. We don't get comfortable. We have another generation to bring up in the Lord so that this church and the church as a whole can continue. Where is your heart on this? If it's not for the next generation, I'm going to say it very simply, very plainly, you're wrong. And Kyle showed me this quote uh, the other day, and I just had to add it. And I'm not sure who wrote it, but it says, One thing that's clear about the future is that our children are going to need to be braver than us. They're going to need better theology than us. They're going to have to be better at evangelism, better at apologetics. The world is poised to devour your children, and they need to be ready to fight and die well. And the responsibility to teach them falls on us. We all have a responsibility to reach the next generation, and it comes with a stern warning. I just want to say it's been such an honor being able to pour into our three seniors for the last three years. And it doesn't matter if you're 28 or 88, we are called to reach one more generation. And do not take that call lightly and don't compromise who God is because it will, not can, it will have dire consequences, not only for you, but also for that one more. Or maybe you're not pouring into them. Maybe you're not reaching the next generation because you have yet, not yet believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ain't no time like the present. Let this be the day of your salvation. You don't have to be the next generation for you to know Jesus. If you believe that Jesus did on the cross somehow, some way counted for you, and you believe in your heart, I would encourage you to confess that with your mouth. Feel free to come to the altar. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to reach the next generation. May we have a heart 
to reach one more generation, Lord. That a church that isn't reaching the next generation, Lord, is a dying church. Do not let this be a dying church, Lord. Use this church as your vessel, Lord. Use us for your glory and your honor, Lord. May we exalt your name. We can't do it, Lord. Only you can. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You guys can, you guys can stay seated, actually. We're going to sing a song that we've never sung before. And... Um,